This is Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Welcome to the show. We've got a special episode for you today, just the two of us. We're going to talk about Brian's trading and how he has fared over the, over the basically over 2020. So Brian, you've basically broken it up where we were talking just briefly here about some of your top trades, some of your bottom trades, and then some of your interesting trades. Can you give us an introduction? What do you've got on, on these trades? And then we'll dive into them a little bit. Sure. So, so let me give you some trading philosophy. And I, we've talked about this in some previous episodes. So um, this is kind of a, a more of an interesting thing for me to do with my money on the side. So this is not, you know, my primary salary. I'm not risking huge amounts of money here. You know, this is something I do for fun. I, I consider it fun and I, and I enjoy doing it. Right. And so um, my goal is just, you know, to try to see those numbers go up as best I can and, you know, try to do my best every time I'm trading. And so um, unlike Michael, I'm not a, I wouldn't say I day trade, you know, fully, I don't have one strategy and I just follow that strategy. I kind of, you know, I get interested in certain things and I, you know, try to, you know, follow strategies for the specific trades I'm doing, but I'm not, I would say I'm more of a swing trader than I am a day trader. And I do hold several long positions in my, I guess, core trading account. But then again, as we chatted before, you know, in one of the first few episodes, you know, the majority of my money is, you know, in these retirement accounts that, you know, are just, you know, sitting in, you know, mutual funds that are, you know, just kind of tracking the S&P 500, you know, and they're doing, you know, generally okay. But in my active trading account, um, you know, I, I'll select a few stocks and I'll hold them and I'll sell them and I'll buy other ones. And I have positions that are small and I have positions that are large. So for perspective, you know, the most of the trading in my account is a, is I'm trading in a Roth account. So I am limited by, you know, PDT and I do have to wait for settlements and stuff like that. So I'm not, you know, in and out, uh, I'm not really over trading that much. And that's kind of what lends me to the the swing trading strategy. So, so all of your trades that we're going to discuss today happen inside of a Roth IRA. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So this, it's and, not, the, and that's subject to the PDT rule. Well, I guess you have a three-day settlement, right? So otherwise you'll get locked out of your account. So if you, if you don't let your money, if you go in, out, in, out within a three-day period and you don't let it settle, uh, you'll get warnings from most brokerages and then you'll be locked, you'll be locked from trading. Gotcha. So, okay. So I would still recommend, like, if you had, a, if you're in a position and you're getting crushed and you're going to have to violate that rule, I would say, like, it's worth it to, you know, maybe exit a really losing position and have your account frozen for 90 days than it is to be stuck losing a ton of money, right? But, uh, but so far I've played it in such a way that I have not had to have that happen to me. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear that. Yes. Right. So it sounds like, if, and I think, if you, I think anyone, if they manage their trades properly they can they can avoid that. You just have to know what you can do before you get into the trade. Right. And so I would say I section my accounts into like a certain amounts. So for perspective, like I'm not trading with huge sums. So I'm like, I have about a $16,000, $17,000 account as we speak right now. I've done pretty well for the year, but I would say, I'd say a core position of is that about 10,000 in cash and then 6,000 sits in kind of maybe lower, more long-term investments that I'm willing to trade in and out of. But like, usually if I'm moving a major position, my major position is $10,000 into a trade, then $10,000 out of a trade. And then I kind of have 6,000 split up amongst a lot of speculative things and different things that I, you know, find interesting. Um, so, so you, oh, go ahead. Right, so what are you up for the year on all these trades? So, you know, it's a smaller account. You consider it play account. How, how, how is it going overall for the year? So, yeah, I think I, so for the year, well, I have my one year total uh, is about 49% up. This is pretty good, but the market's Phenomenal. been doing pretty well as that's well. It's a lot better than I'm doing actually. Yeah. I mean, but it, you know, there's been some downs. I mean, I went significantly, I think the low point, you know, I say I'm sitting at 16, 17,000. I mean, I think it was down to 8,000, 9,000 when, you know, the crash hit as well. Um, and so again, a lot of the a lot of the trades I did, I'll just you know, I have a general philosophy. But my general philosophy is when I use my bigger position, I tend to want to buy things that 
I would be okay holding for the long term. So like, I think Michael would never want to hold a penny stock for the long term ever. That would <laughs> he would never want to do that. But if I, I get like I, said, I, I like to be out by noon, you know, right. I, I, it's it's tough for me to hold past one o'clock. Right. So typically, if I take a trade and I buy a company, I'm willing to swing it. But if for some reason it moves to drop, like temporarily or for a few weeks, I would be okay because I did a little bit of research about the company. I think, generally speaking, at the point I bought at, at some point in the future, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be a week from now, but it will be higher than at the position I bought it at. And it may not be in the next 10 minutes. So that's okay. I'm willing to hold it for some time to get above that point. So you say you do some research. What's, what's the philosophy? What are you looking for when you go to buy a stock? Right. So I think you have some strategies where you're trading breakouts and you're doing some dip buying. Generally, I would say I'm more of a dip buyer. So I like to try to find things that are undervalued that have potential to go up. But the problem is with that strategy is if things are dropping, they can drop even further, right? So uh, you have to be careful doing that. So I'm happy to yeah go into the, the trades of the year and maybe just start off with some what you know some interesting stuff that happened. And I think you know if you look back at the year, a lot of people if you just would have bought any stock between you know after March and you know held it for some period of time, you would have made money, right? Even if you swung it or you day traded it or you did anything, you most likely would have made money. If you I just think that I read that the S and P 500, you know, 500 biggest companies in the states, uh, I believe 450 of them are up for the year right now. Yeah. So, so like, yeah, it, it's, it wouldn't take a rocket scientist or uh, I guess an absolute, you know, investing genius to pick a few stocks that are up for the year. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying I'm not going to say this is any groundbreaking strategy. I wouldn't say like, you know, hey, I'm not going to go write a book about this. You know, this is I'm just going to explain to you what I did and then, you know, take it for what you will. And then I would just say this. I like Michael run a lot. And so I listen to financial podcasts when I run and I, I enjoy listening to CNBC. I enjoy listening to Jim Cramer. I wouldn't you know, do everything that Jim Cramer says, but I think it's a valuable piece of information. Just like reading Wall Street bets is a valuable piece of information. Reading Reddit's a valuable piece of information. And so sometimes I, get, I do get ideas from there, but I'm not saying like, I'm just going to follow what somebody else says. Exactly. You know, we have our own ideas and theories, right? And yeah. So, I mean, I, I like Jim Cramer too. You know, I've read his book, uh, Confessions of a Street Addict. I actually thought it was a good book and, and pretty entertaining. Um, I think the only the biggest gripe I would have with Jim Cramer is that he puts a lot of these stocks out there and talks about them. And may, I haven't I don't listen to it that much, but he doesn't always tell you how to trade them necessarily. You know? Right. It's He's always like, oh, buy this, buy this, buy this. But then when one goes down, you don't really hear about it again. Yeah. So I would say like people have done long-term academic studies at Jim Cramer. He's like probably 50-50. And I would say he's generally bullish on a lot of things. Right. But I don't know if he does like, and he'll say sometimes like, oh, this I think is overvalued. Wait for it to come down a little bit and then buy in. Right. But there's some stocks he just, you know, had him on for the guest on for a week. He's like, oh, this sounds amazing. You know, we should buy this. And then like, you're right. You never hear about it. And then he's gotten, he's gotten, you know, people to show him like, Hey, you know, you said this one thing and it went, flying down. But of course, he's always happy about his gains. He's like, oh, I told you to buy Tesla, guys. What happened? You know? And so you know, he's like anybody, but I find him entertaining and I, you know, take it for what you will. So one that Jim Cramer was har- harping on a lot this year was actually, so th- I'll just maybe go into the first trade that I, you know, did decently well on was uh, uh, TJ Maxx. This was during uh, the crises. You know, this was, I, I bought in on May 22nd. And so this was actually right before their earnings, which I think happened on May 20th around then. Um, and so if you recall in May, you know, we were, we were having this like retail apocalypse, right? Like all these small businesses are going to go under. And I think we still, that might happen. A lot of small businesses go under, right? And actually a lot of the major mall retailers were going under. So it's the idea is like, you know, Hey, you know, the banana republics are hurting. No one's going through a mall. No one's going to go buy gap. You know, no one's going to buy from small retailers. And so the theory was that, Hey, no, no one's going to TJ Maxx either, but if they can survive all these small mom and pop clothing stores going out, stores going out of business and the problems with the malls that, they could buy up all their clothing inventory on the cheap, right? 
and then they would be the last survivor, right? And so even if their revenue is bad now, they could hold out long enough. And they've been hit so hard already that they're like their share price had already you know tumbled quite a bit. And so I thought that was like, okay, this is a decent you know play. I can hold TJ Maxx for some time. Like eventually it should recover. And I think these are some good catalysts. I mean, it kind of made sense to me at the time. So I bought in before earnings on uh, May 22nd and uh, at 54 or you know at $50, 5088. And um, I was able to hold for just uh, just th- uh, four days and it was up to 5463. I think this is when I remember it was flying up that day. And basically I kept putting in stop limit order or I was putting in stop limit orders and I just kept rising. I just kind of kept rising my stop limit as it was going up that day in the morning. And then a trailing stop. Yeah. yeah trailing stop. I was just following it up. And then uh, I got out with 7% gain in like, you know, it, it, you know, I just made a thousand dollars basically just doing this kind of swing trade of TJ Maxx on earnings. So it sounds like you had a pretty solid conviction though on it because you had a, a sizable position. Almost all of your account was in yeah, almost all my account was in it. You know, maybe not the smartest thing to do if it goes down, but you know, maybe I got a little lucky there. But I was willing to hold TJ Maxx for the long term. And if you look at TJ Maxx now, it trades above uh, sixty now. Uh, it did have some chop in the you know the fifty range. It was kind of range bound between the fifties and, uh, and and was you know, maybe fifty to fifty five. So you could have made some price. You know, you could have made some profit swinging that around. Um, but uh, but fortunately, I did, I was able to exit there and you know make a good profit. The other one that I bought. Oh, go ahead. It looks like you caught the meat of the move. So, I mean, I, I am very cautious about holding into earnings because I always feel like, well, you know, I just don't even tr- do longer term trades anyways because I'm scared to. But it's, you know, you held into earnings and, you know, you, you obviously, you had your strategy lined out. You knew that eventually it was going to come back. So you were willing to hold for a decent amount of time. And I like that. And then, but as soon as the profit happened, you went ahead and said, okay, this is the profit. Let's go ahead and take it. Oh yeah, just let's go and take it. Let's you know find some other investments to trade in. And I, I'll say after this, there's a lot of, I'd say I did some significant day trading where like the profits are not seven percent. It's like you know I'm making 0.4 percent, or you know I'm making forty dollars off of risking ten thousand. That's okay with me. I'm willing to make forty dollars every three days. That doesn't bother me. So, but like this is one that you know it, it worked well, and I'm I'm pretty happy about it. Um, yeah, other, awesome, good trade. Yeah, yeah. So very happy about that one. Another one around the same time period, actually. Yeah, only like you know a week earlier. Um, I was kind of swing trading Hasbro. So Hasbro is a stock I followed actually. And I actually lost a decent, well, I would say lost a decent amount of money, but I lost. That's some, the one that makes the, uh, the the Monopoly and whatnot, right? Yeah. So they actually, yeah, they make Monopoly, which is a big part of their portfolio. They make um, uh, Magic the Gathering. I don't know if you've heard that, that card game, you know, Magic. Uh, they yes, make- uh, I, I know uh, of it. They make Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, that's another, uh, their, their, you know, platforms. They have a lot of toys. So they make a lot of Star Wars toys or no, is that Mattel? I think so. They make a lot of other just random toys. So a lot of their profits are tied up in like, will they get Christmas toys, you know, to North America, right, and stuff like that. And you know, was their supply chain affected by COVID? And so I was trading them in May, and basically they had come down from over a hundred dollars a share into the the 60s range. And actually, I kind of had fallen with them along the way, and I had exited my position on the way down. But I looked like, okay, you know, they were going to start recovering from the 60s. And so basically, I took a position on May 15th, and I took a sizable position, and I would say. You know, what are some catalysts that Hasbro go, has going for it besides, you know, just, you know, it was beaten down. Um, and I think in May, they were actually had a decent online uh, video game presence as well. They were getting, getting a little bit into that and it would seem to be doing well. Um, but again, you know, these are long-term trends. Should it really affect a five-day period? Probably not, but I was fortunate I, that- it, You know, I personally think about it. I like Hasbro as a COVID play. If everyone's going to be locked in their house, what are you yeah, going to do? You're going to play Monopoly, right? I mean- 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one funny thing they said now is like, there's, there's a back order of chess sets. Like you can't get chess sets now. Like that's a funny thing, you know, and I, I'm an avid chess player. So that when that news popped up, I was like, Oh, that's kind of funny. You know, everyone's going to go play chess. So How yeah. Was, when was yeah. the last time you played a, a game of chess? Do you play pretty often? Uh, you know, I used to play in high school, so I, I can, I can give a story time really quick. I was almost state champion of Missouri in chess. Um, and like, so I was going to challenge you to a game until you said that, uh, well, you know, the skills deteriorate over time. Right. And I got, I got really, I guess just, here's a, here's a side life story, but I was almost state chess champion and there's a rating in chess. And like I, my rating is like under 1200 or under 1300. Um, I ended up fourth nationally in the under like 1300 division one year in my senior year of high school. Um, but the state chess championship, like I'm playing people that are rated like 1800, 2000. Right. And like, I just happened to get a bunch of wins in a row. And I just remember the last game, right? So this is the final game. If I win it, I become state champion. If the other guy wins it, he becomes state champion. But the weird thing about the mechanics of it, if there was a draw, neither of us would become state champion and this other guy would become state champion based on tiebreakers, right? And huh. and so in chess, what had happened is basically I was in a position where I like basically could force a draw with this thing called um, like uh, basically you could infinitely check their king. So if you can infinitely put them in check. It's called like repetitive check. If the, if you have the same position occur in chess three times in a, at three points in the game, if the same position occurs, it's considered a draw. But the problem okay. is if, if a draw happens, I can't become the champion, right? And he doesn't become the champion either. So if I let him out of repetitive check though, then he can potentially win. So basically what had happened is I basically went really aggressive and I had him nearly mated, but the problem is I couldn't mate him. He had done a, a, enough of a defense that he could force the draw. And the thing is, I was like, okay, well maybe I can try to like you know, I, I felt it was a loss if I, if I took the draw. I can't take the draw. And he even offered me the draw. And I said no, right? And so then we played it out and I eventually lost, right? And he became the champion. But I should have realized at the time was this is a dumb rule that if we draw, this other guy gets to be the champion. What I should have said is like, hey, other guy who's clearly watching the game and like everyone's around our table, this is a draw. If I don't take the draw now in repetitive check, like I'm going to lose, right? And he can't, this other guy can't win. I should have been like, let's make a deal here. We all draw and then we all play like a five minute round robin against each other, another chess game. And then that determines the champion because then we can actually have a fair, you know, outcome here. Instead of like, are, are you allowed to renegotiate the terms of it? I don't like, know, but I feel like I should have been able to try that with the tournament director there. <laughs> like I should have at least like said, hey, like I'm sure the other guy on the other side would have been like, heck yeah, because if this, if this is a definitive result, like I win or the other guy wins, I don't become champion. So now this gives this third guy a chance. And the guy who just was playing me offered me the draw. Like he offered me the draw knowing that the draw would cause him not to become champion. So like, this is, I think the classic prisoners level, like we all win by having a playoff, right? Cause I can't force the win here. And so, uh, so anyways, I could have, so basically I had to decide, I could decide who becomes King. I can play the game and lose and let the other, my opponent become King, or I can draw and let the, this other guy become King. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to try to fight on. And like, maybe the guy will run out of time on his clock or something like that. Or maybe he'll make some massive mistake, even though he's clearly an intelligent person I'm playing. And then of course, I guess, the yeah, I mean, it sounds like you didn't have a, you didn't have a downside, right? You knew unless something crazy happened, you knew that you couldn't win. Right. But I was like, you know what? I, I might as well try it. Cause point one is better than like 0%. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. But I should have realized like, that's the game theory at the game, but I should have said like, let's try to, again, it's the Kobayashi Maru. If you've ever seen star Trek, right? Like captain Kirk is going to lose the battle. Right. How do I win this? I have to rewrite the rules. Like, yeah. and that's the only way that could have realistically won anyway. So this is, this is completely side to chess and Hasbro. And no, I think, it, I think it's cool. I think it's nice to know a little bit more about your background. I knew that you were a gamer. I actually didn't know that. You, I don't know if I knew. I don't think I knew that you played chess. And so 
Yeah, I played chess back in the day a little bit. It was actually uh, a friend of mine who also is a lawyer these days. And uh, we were in the same social studies class together. And our, uh, our, our teacher, who actually, Marine too. So we both, we had, you know, a lot of, a lot of connections here. Um, me and him always just kind of, we finished early. And I wasn't like a, a student in all my classes, but social studies, I did good in social studies. You know, like I, I enjoyed that. I thought it was an interesting class. So there was a chessboard in the back. So we'd finish this test usually, and then we'd start playing chess. And we'd usually go back after school. That's how big of a nerd I was, that I would go back to Mr. Sodgrass's class after, I'm sorry, Mr. Wolfgang's class after school and finish this game of chess. That's a great story. So I, I just, I, I love that story because how I got involved with chess was the same way. I would play after high school with friends and there was a chess club at the nerdy school I was at. We had a chess right, like most, most, people, most kids in high school go out and smoke weed after high school. We're, yeah. we're out playing chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Like I could have, you know, I wasn't on the football team. I was not a good athlete. And I was a very chubby kid. You know, I could have been on the math team, but I, I, again, those people are just way too smart for me. Right. So it's like, I feel like chess, I don't know why it has this like nerd appeal, but I feel like this is like the video games of like the 1900s, like they didn't, or like 1800s, right. They didn't have a computer. Right. So this is the only video game they had. This is the equivalent. Right. And so uh, they played chess. And so I, I really enjoy p- playing chess. I think it's, it's a lot of fun. All right. Well, when, when COVID is over, we're going to get together and play a game of chess. Perfect. Love it. Right. Love it. So, so yeah, Hasbro right, got back to Hasbro. Yeah. <laughs> you know, made 7% off of the trade, you know, made 800 some odd dollars. It was good. And, and right now it's trading in the nineties. So maybe, you know, had I, it was, you know, I did my trade in the sixties, you know, again, maybe it was worth a long-term hold, but uh, I was, you know, I made my six and a half percent. I'm good. How, how long did you hold that one? That was uh it was just from the 15th of May to the 20th of May. It went up seven, 6.5% in that one period of time. So that was- Okay, a, and was that another larger trade where you had most of your account in it? Yeah, that was a, yeah, I had a, a sizable chunk of the account in there. Okay. So here, here's, the, uh, here's another one that I think is more of an interesting trade and more of a, like, this is the kind of the, the Robin Hood, you know, stock appeal. And I think you may have even traded this one, but are you familiar with ACB? Yeah, I, I believe I traded ACB last week. Or the week before, but yeah, just recently, I believe right right as the election was taking hold of, for record, this is the 22nd of November, but I was actually surprised how well weed, sticks, weed stocks did after the election because it was such a foregone conclusion that all the weed bills were going to pass. Yeah, I so this, anyways. yeah. So I was like, "Oh, weed." You know, like we're coming up to the election. So I bought it in August 31st, and I didn't put a sizable position. I put like 800 bucks into the weed stock. Right. So if you look at what it was trading for on August 31st, it was trading at like 9.55. If you follow the, the chart from uh, August, uh, or sorry, yeah, this is, sorry, uh, August 31st, it went through October to a low of $3.83. So that tumbled, actually. So where'd you buy at? I bought at um, $9.55 on 8.31.2020. And, and you let it fall to the low of three and change. So basically you had a 60% loss on this one. Yes, from $800 or $700-ish. Okay, right? so it was a small position. You said, okay, this is more of a speculative. Yeah, this is a speculative not, lead. Not you know, put it's my whole account into it. The election. But then I held through the election and then actually I sold it on November 10th. And actually I made a 20% gain. But basically, basically I think it was 60% down and I made a 20% gain on that you know, 800. And then I sold on the November 10th at uh, a price of 1138. If you look at the chart on November 10th, it actually closed, I think in the eights. And uh, so basically I was able to pick the high on the day of November 10th. So I guess I basically I was very fortunate to pick, get the high 
uh, it just weed stocks were, you know, were trading really volatilely around the election time and, and went dramatically up around then. And they, they made a big run d- directly afterwards. It surprised me. It really did. It surprised me because I thought, okay, we're going to have this lead up. Like in 2018, when we had the big re- weed run, it was in the lead up to laws being passed, uh, specifically in Canada. Mm-hmm. But then kind of once the laws went into effect, everything crashed afterwards. So I was keeping an eye on weed stocks earlier in the year, thinking that things might turn around, but they didn't because I was, you know, but then all of a sudden, you know, they did. They spiked yeah, yeah. Directly I mean, if you, after if, the election. If you had bought weed like this year, you most likely lost money. Like yes. in, 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 unless you bought it like directly before the election. Like if you caught the low in October and you, you know, held to November, like you would have made really well. But like, I, I guess I took that trade too early. I was like, you know what? It's August. Like, let's just get in here early. And like, it just tumbled from August to October. And then, yeah, it went skyrocketing from October to mid-November. And now it's, you know, trading in the eights, I think. Um, so I was fortunate to get out when I did, but that was, that was one that, you know, again, smaller 7, position. 713 was the closing price on Friday. Yeah. So there you go. 713. So not even the eights. So that's kind of dramatic. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the market's always forward looking, but maybe it's not always so forward looking. Yeah. It's just interesting how these stocks do trade. Cause you were able to look at TJ Mac, TJ Max and Hasbro and say, okay, you know, these ones are most likely to survive COVID probably even Hasbro, which is likely to do very well. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting about ACB's actual financials are like not good. Uh, and I think that's the problem. So ACB is not one I, I think, I mean, it's a speculative play. I think it's fine to hold, but like it's underlying financial performance. So the thing is we treat ACB as like, generally speaking for weed, like if weed does good, ACB does good, but that's not necessarily true. ACB is one player in the weed market and there are a lot of players. And then there's a lot of independent people who just sell weed, you know, from their, their you know, backyard. Right. And so like, I don't know if ACB is the one to be the one. Right. So, um, Anyways, ACB was a complete speculative play, and you know, I guess maybe a little luck, but I was also trying to. I also had it was my prediction that you know it would it would run up to the election, and I it did run up to the election. It just kind of ran up in a different time frame than I thought. Fair enough. No, you you made your made your bet, and you you stuck with it, and you know you took a you know sizable profit there, 20 percent profit um, on a very you know very small speculative play. So yeah, I like it. So then uh, I think. So a lot of my trade, I'll go maybe to now we're getting to some other ones, but a lot of my trading this year was in a, this uh, ETF that was called, it's called UDAO. And so there's, I think there's two, two ETFs that I really traded this year. One's SDAO and one is UDAO. And basically UDAO is a, a three times leveraged um, ETF that follows the DAO. So if the DAO goes up by you know $1, this goes up by $3. Um, and conversely, SDAO, if it goes down by a dollar, if the DAO goes down by a dollar, SDAO goes down by $3. And so I did a lot of UDAO trading and it's usually like, you know, $40, $100 and same with SDAO. Um, but I did it so frequently that I, you know, probably over the course of the year, I made a decent amount of money. These are leveraged ETFs. So if the DAO goes from, we're talking, we're not saying necessarily a dollar, but more of a percentage. Oh yeah. Sorry. It's a percentage. Right. The DAO is a, it's a point, you know, a point based. In, uh, so it's, it's a, it goes down 1%. It goes down, this goes down 3%. If it goes up 1%, it goes up 3%. So UDAO, I basically bought it on, uh, June 15th, this was probably the biggest UDAO gain I made. But basically what had happened on June 11th is that the Dow had plunged 7%. That, June 11th was, was a Thursday. And so you see the articles, it's like COVID cases are going back up. You know, we've had this giant recovery, but oh my goodness, the Dow plunged about 7% on June 11th. Um, and June 12th, it recovered. And then the 13th and 14th were a weekend. And so June 15th was the Monday after the 7% drop and a like a small rebound. And then 
I was going to say, okay, we've, we've got this, we've got the large drop. We're getting a little bit of, you know, going up, you know, I, it's my bet that the Dow will be eventually be higher than it is when I buy in. So I think this is a pretty safe trade. Um, you know, if you don't mind holding for a year, yeah, you don't mind holding a year. Like maybe the Dow goes down forever, you know, after this, okay, whatever. But if at some point in my life, I think the Dow will be higher. Uh, I can't say that for S Dow, S Dow, like the, the stock market, like you may never get that low, but at some point in my life, I think the, the, the Dow will be higher and it just came off of a 7% plunge. So it should hopefully go up. And uh, basically between the 15th and the 18th, uh, it went up another 7% or, or um, you know, UDAO went up a 7%. So that's, you know, whatever, divide that by three is what the, the Dow did. And so I was able to catch that little bump and, you know, made 7% off of the, you know, 13 grand I, you know, so I made $1,000 basically off that swing trade. Um, I want to talk about leveraged ETFs because this is what is considered a leveraged ETF. You know, I've traded them as well. I usually do it just on the short side because I'm not patient enough to wait for the long, but I'm willing to bet against the market more than right. for the market in the short term anyways. Yeah. Um, but the leveraged ETFs like these actually do, they can run pretty high fees. They do. Um, they do. And so I think they're good necessarily on a shorter term basis. But like, if you wanted to buy this in your uh, IRA or something like that and hold it forever, odds are the extra gains that you're going to beat or that you might get from being leveraged will get eaten up in all the fees they charge over the long run. Yeah, they do have very high fees. And I guess I would say the Dow is typically not as volatile as it is this year, right? And uh, yes. and high volatility moments. So I think to your, to your point, Michael, I think, yeah, if you read any articles out there on Google, it's like, why don't I just put all, you know, they say putting my money in SPY is great. Like, why don't I put it in triple SPY, you know, for the long term? And, I mean, you're, you you can certainly do that if you want, but you, you will be charged those fees, right? So it's uh, something to take note of. Um, I would say now I'll move to some interesting trades again. So I've done a lot of, you know, well, I, oh, go ahead. If I may direct this, let's leave the interesting trades you want to go to the losses? I want to hear about the we we talked about the good trades, the best trades. I want to hear about the bottom trades, and then we'll come back to interesting trades. So I, I think the bottom trades; these are fun things that, like, man, that was really dumb in perspective. Like, did I follow any kind of plan here? I was just trying to get lucky. Um, so here's one that I I did. I took my core position, and this is actually one I think I was watching your stream, and you're like, oh, you know, I kind of agree with Michael's thoughts here. This one seems it has good technicals. You know, I'll just get in and get out. You know, Michael's doing this day trading thing. Like, I got this. You know, he said he'll do this. I'm going to get in it. And I think you never even took this trade. So kudos to you for not taking this trade. I think you were wa- it was on your watch list. And I was like, you know what? Again, this is the, maybe the over- what's, what's the ticker? It was a PBI. PBI. A- okay. Yeah. No, I, I know. I remember seeing that one a few different times. I think it's been on my watch list. But yeah, to my recollection, I don't remember trading it. Yeah. So it was, it was breaking out that day. And I was like, you know what? I think Michael has a good point. It's breaking out. Like it is a little bit of research on it. You know, okay. It's like Pitney Bowes, I think it is. And uh, you know what? I'm going to go in this trade. And this is on August 6th. And I bought in at $5.47. And basically within a 20 minute period, 20 minutes, it went down 5% in 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, like, I don't want this to go down 10%. I have, you know, 10 grand sitting in here. I've literally lost five, like I've lost $600 in like 20 minutes. Like that's crazy, Right. I got to, I got to stop. I got to, this has got to cut it. Like I can't watch this thing the whole day. Like literally it recovered in the next 10 minutes. It went back up 5%. It was like it flash crashed <laughs> down 5%, which is insane. I'm like, did, did so, is someone watching my screen and trying to screw me out of my money? Like that's how I felt. <laughs> but well, like, you know, you know what? What, I, what was your entry and exit? So this was all on the same day on you, the, you probably won't even see this in the chart. August it, 6th, right? Cause it, well, you, unless you can pull a one day chart of this thing, I, I bought in it. I say averaged in at 547. 
and I sold at 519. And I think it bottomed at 519 in that like that 20 minute period. So I literally had, sold at the bottom. Within a 30 cent range in the fives there. And f- full disclosure here, it went to seven in the next two days. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's breaking out like, man, but like I had no conviction. I was like, what the heck is happening? Like, this is so volatile. Like, I don't understand the business. Like, I just bought this because I was like, oh, Michael, like, he just risks a little bit, you know, and it should just pop a little bit. Like, I'll just get out. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So, ne- so then I, you know, I violated my own thing of like, you know what? I didn't really research it well. I had money sitting around. I just wanted to gamble with it. That was, you know, not a, not a, not the best move. So there well, you go. I, I, but at the same time, you learned a lesson there. I think that, that it's really good that you recognize that you weren't, you didn't have conviction on the trade. You didn't have conviction on the company. And so even though I said, yes, it's breaking out and it did, it actually did absolutely break out very clear breakout. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. That, in that 20 minute period, I mean, it looked like it could like, because you yeah, don't know what's going right. to happen. It's, it's like dropping 5% in 20 minutes. It's like, okay, is everyone dumping right? Are we, are we pumping <laughs> dumping right now? Like, is everyone exiting their, their position right now? Like, that's what it looked like. It, like, it had a sharp line down. Like, you know, like, and it was just, uh, anyways, and I didn't well, want to lose more than 5%. Within, after making that spike to seven, it bottomed out below five. Yeah. So these, and these, these penny stocks, they do that. They are super volatile. That's why I don't, that's why I can't stand to hold because just like you were saying, oh, all of a sudden it dropped 5% in a few, in 20 minutes. That That's why I can't hold past a certain time because I have to be glued to the screen when I'm in these things. Yeah. I want to know every single tick they make. Is that, maybe that's the thing. Like if, like literally if I just walked away like, oh, I'm going to go like make myself a coffee for 20 minutes. Like, you know, and then like, oh, like the stock didn't move. But because I was there watching it, like that caught, you know, I don't blame anything. I, you know, this is a learning lesson. I actually think like, you know, who knows, maybe in an alternate timeline, it would have dropped more than 5%. You know, I was like 5% is my cutoff. I'm not willing to lose more than 5% on this thing. And that's why I cut my losses at 5%. Um, well, no, I think that's perfect though. You, you had your max loss lined out. You knew what you were willing to, what kind of risk you're willing to take on it. And what, and you also learned a little bit more about yourself from that. I think that's one of the things trading does. It, it really teaches you about yourself. What are you capable of doing? What are you capable? What what type of pain are you capable of holding through? And that's why, you know, I've got my pain thresholds and it, I think every, everyone does, you know? Yeah. So that's, see, okay. So now I'll even a worse one where I'm a, I'm definitely a bag holder and like, I'm okay. real quick. Can we, can we finish that one off? How oh, much, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had several thousand dollar winners. To begin with, how much did we end up losing on that one? Or we lost we... uh six hundred and twelve dollars and eighty. Okay, all right. So you didn't like you cut your losses. You got out. You didn't allow one bad trade to take out all of your wins, all of your gains, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So that's a good. I think that's that's a good trade. Yeah. So that so here I'll, I'll give some. I think another. I would say that I'm going to give the kind of the losers. I would say the one problem with or not maybe downside of my strategy again if i buy a stock that i'm willing to hold for a long time at some point in the future it may go higher than when i bought it but it may be months ahead so you if you there's a what do you call it there if you are not using your money and it's stuck in something that's a loss in a way because you could have been trading something else right there's the uh opportunity cost of having your your money parked somewhere like if the market's you know going up 30 percent and you're stuck in some stock that's going you know one percent just because you want to you know exit higher than when you started out you're potentially losing out on potentially other trades, but there's, of course, there's infinite other trades you could be making. So anyways, that's just a, a philosophical thing. So I, I, I would say I was guilty of that in my trading strategy where there's some stocks that I held for way too long for just very minuscule gains, but I was unwilling to sell for a loss. Uh, and so I'll talk about some of those as well, but, uh, but I'll, I'll talk about some big losers since Michael likes to hear about this too. And those are, those are maybe fun stories and maybe good learning lessons. So one was uh, the next one I'll talk about is FRSX. 
and FRSX. Okay. I don't think you've ever traded this one, but um, it's, I'm not familiar with it. No. So this one was on uh, this one was talked about on on Reddit. It was in the penny stock thread. So uh, it's got some big spikes in it. I'm looking at the chart. It's it's made it's made some runs. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. It's an interesting stock. I think it's kind of range bound between like eighty cents and a dollar fifty. Uh, and it's been up to maybe two dollars in the past. Um, so what they do is like aut- autonomous driving, autom- autonomous vehicles. Um, and you know, EV has been huge this year, right? Um, and a lot of the vehicle companies have been huge this year. So this is kind of a, in that space. Um, you know, there's whatever what there you know, catalysts or whatever. You know, they they have always like, oh, they're going to do a deal with FLIR. You know, they do FLIR is, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, they make the night vision goggles for the U.S. military, and they do a lot of night vision like um, infrared detection. And so in my job, I kind of also I've been involved with some autonomous vehicle companies in my own personal work. So I kind of know that this is a very hot space that where people are trying to acquire companies in the space. And I actually did look at FRSX's like some of their patents that they filed. So they, they filed some legitimate patents. They certainly paid their patent attorneys and they filed some patents. So I was like, okay, this company is somewhat legitimate even, and it's an Israeli company. And you know, I like the Israelis, right? So like, okay, it has some things going for it. You know, maybe this is a potential, you know, diamond in the rough, right? And so- uh, I'm going to jump in. Israelis, don't tell anyone I told you this. But they make the best tanks in the world. I, I, you know, I served five years in the Marine Corps, and we learned about tanks. Part of my, uh, my job was anti-tank, and so during an anti-tank training, we learn about all the different tanks of the world, so we can recognize good tanks versus bad tanks, essentially. And one of the things we learned about was the Israeli tanks, which are just incredible. I mean, my goodness, you think, you know, the U.S. we have the Abrams tank, which is a very, very incredible piece of machinery. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the Israelis have this thing called the Makava. And the Makava, I mean, I'm sorry. If I ha- if you put a Makava in a fight with an Abrams, I would put my money on the Makava oh, any day of the week. Well, luckily, they're usually on our side. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a good thing. So it's just one of those things. But they have, inc- they do, I 100% agree. Israelis have some, some of the most incredible technology coming out of that, uh, coming out of that little tiny country. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story. I mean, so... I'll just tell you one thing. When I was in middle school, you know, both my parents worked. So after school, I would have to go to kind of like a daycare after school. Like I, you know, I couldn't go over to some friend's house. I had to like, so what I would go is to a local Jewish community center. I'd hang out with Jewish kids for basically all through middle school from like, you know, three to 5 PM. And so like, I became, you know, good friends with these people, like some to this day, actually still Facebook friends with them. So, and I, I do follow like, so through that, I kind of learned a lot about the history of Israel and became interested about that topic. And, you know, you're right. They've, they've, you know, they're not sitting on any oil reserves, you know, they're just kind of having to, how's their economy so prosperous? It's because they have a lot of, you know, high technology companies. Uh, they have really good pharmaceutical companies. And so uh, a lot of the backbone of the internet was, uh, you know, built by some, you know, Israeli scientists and stuff. So, I mean, you know, these are kind of maybe positive stereotypes that they have, but I mean, uh, I would say that, you know, there's plenty of examples of, you know, really smart Israeli companies doing well. So that, that, I thought that was a plus in their side, but with all that positive things about the company, I bought in at a dollar fifty in July thirty first, and right now it's trading at a dollar oh two. It's gone down to like eighty cents, and so that's thirty two percent down. And I put in about twenty five hundred dollars, so that's about eight hundred dollars down. I'm still holding it, so maybe you can call me a bag holder, but I'm okay holding that company. I'm fine with it. Well, I don't. I don't think you're necessarily a bag holder if you went in on a smaller position for a lo- and you knew you knew going in it could be a longer term hold. I always consider a bag holder to be somebody that gets in for short-term gains and ends up holding in hopes of long-term break-even. Yeah, this is no genius brands. You know, this is, I think they're, I mean, I, 
from their patent filings, I like to think that they seem legitimate and like at least they, you know, their science, they put some things and they put some, some patent claims, uh, you know, but again, I haven't visited their, you know, facilities. I don't know their people, right. Their CEO, you know, they're not putting out tons of press, you know, um, but you know, it is what it is. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, I'm okay with being down there. So. Well, you know what? I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't knock uh, a small speculative position in autonomous driving because of the uh, hot sectors that we have seen, autonomous driving is not one of them. We have not seen the hot sector autonomous driving. And I think that is to come. I just don't know when. Yeah. But when it really starts hitting the mainstream a little more, I mean, I know Tesla has done some of it, but I think when it really hurts, starts to hit the mainstream, I, I would, I'd be willing to bet on this, uh, on this company. And I'm not willing to take a position now because, you know, I'm looking at the one year lows are 46 cents. Yes. So it's trading at a dollar right now. So like, I don't want to risk, you know, I don't want to take a 50% loss because I think it could easily retest those levels in the meantime. It might be a year. It might be 10 years. Who knows? So I, I mean, again, I think this is kind of like the EV, like this is one of those companies, like it, it might get, so I think FLIR, they have some deals with FLIR. I think FLIR would be the one to likely buy them out if their technology proves successful. Um, and then, you know, FLIR has the potential to benefit. Uh, by the way, I'm also long FLIR. So like I have 2K, like or 1.5K in FLIR and it's up like 8%. It's not a huge up, but it's just, you know, you know, these are the kind of things maybe I think go under the radar, ha ha ha, but like that uh, they do radar stuff too. But uh, it's just that, you know, I think that like, you know, they have a potential for a long-term run. So anyways, those are just the bets I'm making. And I think if you, okay. again, if you wish to listen to Jim Cramer, he's, he's a lot about FLIR, you know, defense play that's kind of been beaten up a little bit that, you know, has some room to grow. Um, so that's one, that's one that's down. I'll right, say so you're still holding that one. I like that. I, I actually do. I'm, I'm not going to take a position, but I like that. I think it's, I think it's a cool stock and I think that's going to be a hot sector that I'm going to scalp for, try to scalp for 50 cents. You know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if in 2023 or 2022, I end up trying to scalp, you know, FRSX for uh, for a few pennies here. In the just three. be careful. It's volatile down too. Like it'll just drop 20% one day, you know, for, I mean, cause I followed it. So like, it's just, you know, it'll, it'll gap up 20%. I think it's right to me right now. If you were just technically trading it, I think it's ranged bound between like 80 cents and a dollar 10. Like, I don't yeah. think it's, unless there's something major happens, it's not going above a dollar 10 and like anything major the other way, I don't think it's going to go below 80 cents. Um, but that's just my thoughts. Trade how you wish. Uh, and yeah, don't, don't hold me to that. We're not responsible for any trade. We're not providing any buy or sell recommendations. Yeah. These are, yeah. And you have no way to confirm this is real or not. You just have my, my word to tell you, but I, I try, I'm, I would say I'm a generally honest person, but up to you to take that information. So I, you're I, I, a skeptical one too. Yeah, I know this could be complete baloney. Who, who knows? <laughs> this is just, you know, there's only like, like three, you know, two people on the internet. It's just me. And then some one other guy who puts the, all the other stuff on the internet. Right. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> So what, else, what else do you got? You got one more, one more bad trade. I want to, I want to talk. I, about. I'll say, I'll, I'll say, I can have to do two more trades. I'll say one bad trade because I tied my money up for a month with like my major position was bank of America. And oh, uh, that's a, uh, that's Warren Buffett's favorite. He actually is, he's been buying bank of America. He's been selling, I think, JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and buying Bank of America. Yeah. So, yeah, you would think, okay, maybe I made some money off of Warren Buffett in this trade. So, yeah, I heard that too. There's all this talk about, like, okay, you know what? Tech has been flying. People are going to rotate out of tech. They're going to rotate into these, you know, other things that have been beaten down, the value plays, right? And, you know, oh, as the economy gets better, COVID gets better, you know, small businesses will get better, you know, people that loan money, you know, people need to get loaned money, you know, banks will do okay, right? And banks have been beaten up. So, that was the logic. And maybe I was early, but like Bank of America, Basically, I bought in at like twenty five dollars, twenty five dollars and eight cents 
on uh, June 25th. And I don't think it ever broke above that mark until like July 31st. And so I just held that position. And it was down 7% at one point. And bank stocks don't move very much. So like being down 7% is not going to go up 7% the next day. Like that's just not how Bank of America stock like runs. You know, it's just, it's going to maybe move 1%, you know, at most in either direction. Uh, until, until, of course, like maybe the last week after the elections where everything was just flying. But, uh, but it was range bound for quite some time. And then eventually on July 31st, it got slightly above my entry point. And so I was able to sell for a slight profit, which was nice. Yes. So uh, it's a small profit, basically almost break even on it. How big of a position was that? So I put like 14, almost $15,000 in there to make. Basically, that was your account. You put yeah, I account. put my account into Bank of America and made $126 off of it for tying up my account for about a month. And it was like down 7% at one point. Uh, so a little stressful there, but like, I mean, not, I mean, not too stressful. It was like, you know, I couldn't trade for that period of time. It was tied up. I mean, I could have just taken a loss and, you know, tried to earn my other things, but I was, you know what, I think big, I thought long-term Bank of America was going to be fine and it was going to get above that. And once it finally did, I was like, you know what, I'm not going to let it run higher. It probably will run higher, but like, I'm done with this trade. Get, get me out of Bank of America. And, uh, you rec- yeah, you recognize your mental limits. So no, it's good. It's good. Uh, you know, a break-even trade. It is what it is. So I'll tell you another funny break-even trade that like almost cost me a lot. Um, so have you ever had Beyond Burgers, Michael? I, I have not actually eaten one, no, but I, I, I know the stock well. You know the stock. Have you ever had like an Impossible Burger? Have you ever had the Impossible I, I have I have yet to eat a fake, uh, a plant-based burger. So I, I cannot speak to uh, the actual flavor of them or anything. Okay. So I, I like myself a Beyond Burger. I was a believer in the Beyond Burger. You know, I, for, for the record, I eat a lot of meat. I eat bacon. I love chicken. You know, all the meats are great. You know, I had this Beyond Burger. I was like, that's really good. I like the Beyond Burger. And so I would go to Costco and I'd buy Beyond Burgers and I'd cook them. But like, basically, I was like, you know what? Beyond basically had this stretch where it went up to like almost the 200s. And now it was, it was like, it had just gone down from 200 to like 156. And you know, like, aha, this is my entry. I'm going to buy at 156. And this was in October 30th. And um, this year, just this past October 30th? October 30th, 156. And you know what? So I was like, hey, I'm better than that guy who bought at 180, right? Like he, he, he's like, you know, he's down, you know, 30 bucks. So like I got this at a premium, right? Like it's at 156, right? And then I held it to November 10th when it finally got slightly above. Okay, I bought it at 156.68 and I sold it at 156.93. So like, was that 20, 10, like 20, 23 cents, you know, 24 cent gain or whatever. 25 cents. Yeah. 25 cents. Right. Um, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, like a 156, a very small, small gain, but like basically it, it, it had, um, I sold on uh, November 10th and it had earnings, I think right, right uh, after November 10th. And then basically after November 10th, it sunk to 125. So basically <laughs> I lost conviction in beyond meat. And I was like, please let me exit this trade for like above my entry point. And like, I was fortunate to have that point. Basically I, I bought Beyond Me because I thought I got it was just from a technical perspective because it was at 180 and it had dropped and this was my dip buy play. But when I realized when I was going out shopping and this is totally anecdotal and probably should never influence your stock trading, but I was like, I saw the Beyond Meat burgers and they were just sitting there. There's tons of inventory sitting at all the stores, right? And like either that means that they're they're just getting shipped there and they're held up there, but like they used to be down. People used to be buying them more. And then I noticed there's a lot of competitors. Like there's a lot of these other Morningstar and like other people, like they're just filling the shelves right next to them. It's like, so like, then what is their intellectual property position? Like, can people, is it, you know, are they just the better tasting brand? You know, what's like, what's, and basically what happened on their earnings reports that, yeah, they didn't sell very well this quarter. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of competition and uh, yeah, they got, they got beat up on their earnings play. They got, yeah, they went down to 125. I exited right before earnings. Thank goodness. Like at 157, you know, or 156.93. And now they're at 136. Like maybe, 
they got beaten up too far, but like, man, I, you know, I, I honestly don't, don't even think so. Frankly, I'm beyond me. The, the valuation is so incredibly ridiculously inflated. Yeah. Uh, and there is so many competitors in the field. Like, you know, you look at something like a Tesla, all right, Tesla way above what they technically should be uh, in at, but they are, they're the leader in the field and the barrier to entry into the electric vehicle, electric vehicle market is, is super, super high, you know? So I can see, okay, maybe a, a Tesla, they're not a Tesla, you know, because yeah, you just mentioned several names I hadn't even heard of. Impossible is another one. The Tattooed Chef's another one. I mean, there's, yeah. there's so many out there. I mean, they're, they're patent, like Tesla has a patent portfolio. Like the Beyond Meat patent portfolio is like not a barrier to entry. Like there's, I mean, not just speaking patents, but like the technical development to make a better battery and the infrastructure to build a battery and the infrastructure to build a car. Like that's like a competitive advantage. Like the infrastructure to build like plant-based meat is not that hard. And then they, they said they're entering China and I was talking to my wife and she's Chinese. And it's like, do you know how, how many soy, like how much they use soy in China? Like there's plenty of people that already have this stuff and like, it tastes great. And like the Chinese just already eat their stuff. Like, why are they going to build this like a crazy American burger that doesn't taste as good as the other stuff in China? Like that was her thing. So it's like, they're, they're betting on all this China expansion. I'm just like, I'm not sure if the Chinese consumer, if she, it's like my wife, isn't going to be super impressed with this because they already have fake meat. It's called soy there. And like they eat tofu all the time and it tastes great to them. So like, why are they going to switch from tofu to this thing? I don't know. No, no I, th- I, think, I think some of the technicals play well into Beyond, and that's about it, is the technical. Because Beyond, because to the point you just made, there's no, we don't need Beyond Meat necessarily. I, I would say I believe in the vision of Beyond. So this is the thing. Okay, so here's maybe my, my, I have a soft spot for environmental things and do good for the planet. Like, I get it. The cows are like major, you know, CO2, you know, it's greenhouse gases. Like cows are like, it's, you know, inefficient, right. To eat meat like this. And like, we eat way too much meat in the American diet, right. It so takes like, more, it takes them two acres. I think it is to, yeah, uh, it, to feed a cow a year. Yeah. It's a lot of water. And then like a lot of methane being released. It's like, just not a, you know, good for the environment thing. Yeah. Right. And so if we switch to this like other thing, like, Oh, maybe that'll be better for the environment. Right. And like, I'm all for that, but like, it's just, and it tastes, and I thought it genuinely tastes good. I like the taste of it, but it's a little expensive and there's a lot of competitors and, you know, a lot of people don't like processed stuff. And then I just look at the consumer habits. And when I go to the store, I see a lot of it sitting on the shelves now. Like it was a novelty a little bit ago, but it doesn't seem like people are, it's just not flying off the shelves as fast anymore. You know, what can I say? Um, so anyways, beyond meat, I'm, I'm very thankful that I got out when I did. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. I think, um, I, said, I, I think Beyond Meat, basically more of the reasons it even got as high as it did uh, were more on the technical side of things because of shorts getting squeezed and things of that nature. Because so many people understood what was actually happening with it or what was happening with the stock, what was happening with the company. They shorted it because they knew it was just super overvalued, but then they ended up getting squeezed. You know, I mean, I'm looking at the chart right here. The low is 50 and the high is 200. Yeah, and yeah, it's so those, highly those volatile. Pretty, yeah, pretty big uh, discrepancies, you know. And yeah, but if you were shorting at fifty, obviously you got squeezed there at some point. You bought back in, hopefully at forty-five. Yeah, right. <laughs> so is, is this trading according to what the underlying asset, right, or like are other market movers pushing the, the valuation here? I mean, I think you make a really good point there. Like, um, you know, people are people don't necessarily buy and sell because of fundamentals, uh, and this is one one of those. I, I would say there's one more that I didn't. I don't have the exact figure in front of me that I did day trade or, or I, I do hold for a slight loss, but uh, I, I feel, I feel I'm okay going long on it. So I, I have another position in DocuSign for about like, you know, uh, and I bought it in like the two twenties 
as oh, it was falling I remember off. Somebody, somebody came into chat and was asking all about DocuSign. They're like, oh, isn't this going to take over the world? I mean, I, mean, I don't know. Docu- yeah. So I say I use a fair amount of DocuSign, but it's like, is that really, again, can somebody else make a program that allows you to do digital signatures? I mean, it doesn't seem like a very fundamentally challenging program to solve, right? Like a, uh, from a, you know, m- making that, developing it, right? But they're the ones who are, did it first and they offer it for a competitive price. And it seems to be the industry standard right now, right? Well, and yeah, I mean, I don't know, what, what can Adobe, why yeah. hasn't Adobe just bought them out or, or developed yes. the same thing, right? So, yeah, there's a lot of e-signature services. It just seems to be like a, you know, this is the default one that people like to use, right? So it's like, you know, for instance, like Zoom is flying, right? Like we use, we're using Zoom right now, but, um, you know, I could use Google, I could use Skype, I can use a lot of like video conferencing things. It just happens to be that Zoom is the one that people prefer at the moment, right? I think it's DocuSign is the one that people seem to prefer at the moment, right? Um, and so anyways, DocuSign was trading in almost 300s. I bought it in like the 220s as it was sinking or down. And I thought that was like, okay, you know, this is from a technicals perspective. I'm okay, you know, and in DocuSign's earnings call, they did pretty well and then it had dropped after their earnings. So like, I think fundamentally they're fine. I think they're making earnings. I think the street, the street, I think eventually, like, I think there'll be some momentum back into tech. It'll do just fine, especially if COVID cases go up. That sense, it tends to, so far, it seems to track with that kind of sentiment, right? So if if NASDAQ does well, if, you know, tech does well, if COVID cases go up, these kind of stocks tend to do well. So So I'm kind of, you know. No, 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 I'm going to, so COVID cases are up right now. We're at the highest level COVID case we've ever had, but we have three vaccines on the horizon. That's true. That's true. I think that's, I think that's a game changer. I think, yeah, I think a long-term game changer, I think still tech can do well in the short term because, okay, you're right. Long-term, I think you're right. Um, but short-term, I think there could be some negativity, but that's just my opinion. And of course, well, and then, you know, we've got these three, you know, vaccines, but w- you know, we don't know the news cycle tomorrow. If it comes out that these vaccines are only effective for three months at a time, are we all going to go and continually get vaccinated against COVID-19 every three months for a cost of a hundred, $180. I'm making numbers up, but I'm just saying like, what is this really going to come down to? You know, I think they're talking about the U S government even is talking about, we're going to pay for everyone to get, we're going to, we're going to foot the bill on the first go round. Yeah. I mean, that's right. Like how much is the supply? We're gonna have to, it's not like already at once. It's going to be slowly dribbled out. Right. And then it's like gonna be slowly dribbled out and we don't know how, and we don't know how long the vaccines gonna be good for. Yeah. And yeah. And there has problems with shipping and like logistics. And then right now they're, they're saying 95% effective, but those were small study sizes. So like, as you go up to larger sample sizes, does that change the effectiveness rate? Is it going to go to 90? Is 90 acceptable? I have my other weird question about this. And maybe this is just me being, you know, a funny question, but like, if I took two of the vaccines, does that, is that additive? For instance, if I'm 90, 90, and now am I like, you know, 1% likely to get the vaccine or is it just like, no, you're just a flat 90 if you take both, right? Or like, they, yeah, is it, will they counteract each other and oh, they yeah. take each other out? And now or am like, I allowed to take two or are they not going to let me? Cause I'm not being like greedy then at that point, you know? And so, and, and, and then like 90, I mean, 95 is high, but if it was 90, like that's still 10% chance you're going to get it. That, that still say screws over. That still like puts a lot of people at risk, right? Uh, well, it does. But I, I guess uh, you look at some vaccines like the flu vaccine, some years it's only 50% effective. They still say go get it because it's it's going to help. If we can have 50% less spread, it still benefits society as a whole. Um, I think you're right that a lot of people look at it is how will it, uh, how will it in, impact me individually? And, you know, it's a coin flip. Will you or will you not get the flu this year? 100% coin flip at that point. But if you look at the big picture of it, what the medical expert or what the medical uh, 
you know, CDC and FDA and everyone wants you to do is more of say, well, we just rather see 50% less uh, flu, flu cases this year. Yeah, yeah, I think as, as a society, obviously, we should do things to reduce it. And I, I'm all for it. So I, I mean, by the way, I, I will take the vaccine. I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer or any kind of things. But I, I might take the vaccine. I might still be careful. That's my thing. Like, I might still alter my behavior. I might not be going out to, like, raves every weekend, you know, partying amongst all the people. You know, I, I might be like, okay, I got my vaccine. It's probably going to work. But I don't need to, I'm still going to wash my hands. And, like, maybe I'll wear a mask, you know, still, you know. Just so were you not washing your hands before COVID? Is that what you're trying to You know, my wife is you were going. So you were not washing your hands and going to raves every weekend is that because you know that you know me michael you know just (laughs) raving out with my two-year-old daughter but i I would say this i thought i washed my hands well but my wife is like no you got fingertips like every single part there you know i don't know maybe i'm a guy i just you know i would just run it in there put the soap on you know whatever but no no now i'm like between all the fingers get the fingertips scrub the wrists get everything in there i'm a new man <laughs> well, that was good. I, I, like I said, I think there's still unknowns out there for sure. Um, but I think right now the market is really trying to price in a return to normal. I think you're right, though. Will will we return to a normal? You just said that you're not not necessarily comfortable jumping back out there like everything is just fine right out the gate, right? And I think I think a lot of people are going to have that hesitation and want to wait and see a little bit and say, okay, can we contain this? Is there not going to be no, you know, another 200,000 cases every single day? Are we not going to see, you know, the morgues full? Are we not going to see the, uh, you know, the hospitals, the IC unit units full? So I, I, I think you're right. I think it, but I also do believe that people have short memories and once it is, if it is necessarily solved, if these vaccines really do give us the solution we need, I think one year from today, we might even forget that it ever happened. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, memories are like five years from now. We'll kind of, Oh, I remember that year. I was kind of indoors a little bit. It's to me, this is the other thing. Like, so there's some people think, think have habits fundamentally changed. Like for instance, am I going to do most of my meetings on zoom instead of meeting people face to face in the future? So like, I, I have a job where I, I meet people. I would have meetings, you know, throughout the day, I would go walk to people's office and I'd talk to them. Am I going to now use zoom instead? Or, you know, I would fly to a conference. Am I going to, maybe save that money from flying and do a zoom instead. Those are the, those are the other questions. I'm going to be working from home more. Are there some lasting changes? That's what I'm kind of you know curious to see how, or are we just going to revert back to our normal selves after the year? All right, what, what do you think on that? Actually, let's, let's talk about that for just a minute. Cause I'm curious. Cause I, I like face-to-face interaction. I think there's something to be said about face-to-face interaction. Um, you know, once when things are back to quote unquote normal, I, I look forward to getting out to conferences again. You know, I've made some really valuable connections. That's, I think, one of the things is for, for me for conferences, I've made some really valuable connections at the conferences I've gone to by physically attending them and physically talking with people, uh, you know, not necessarily just during the conference, but like the people that have to be sitting around you. You get so, to talk with them a little bit more. You get to grab, you know, I, I went to one last year alone. So I, I didn't have anyone to go to dinner with. So I, I grabbed some, I grabbed a bite to eat with some people that were hanging out with me. You know, we, we all of a sudden we had this was great table, eight people that I had never met before. And we were all able to, uh, you know, connect on, uh, on, on, a, on a, a level that we wouldn't have been able to connect them on zoom. 
So I think this is the great debate that's happening like in the stock market. It's like, so for instance, airline stocks. It's like, are, is everyone just going to go out and fly the second the vaccine comes out? We're all going to go to our races, our, our conferences. Our, I think there's like a lot of pent up demand. Like people just want to get on their vacation. Like the second we can all go fly. Or is it going to be like, hey, businesses realize that we don't have to fly. We can save some cash here and, you know, just do Zoom meetings. I think here's maybe my answer. I think it's kind of split. I think that there's going to be an uptick in like what you're saying. Like, hey, let's go to conferences. Let's, let's do some traveling. Let's do some vacation. But I think several businesses are going to be like, you know what? Maybe we don't need people in the offices. Maybe we don't all have to be in San Francisco. Maybe we can like move to the suburbs and do some virtual calls. Like maybe we don't have to be in work five days a week. Maybe we can be in work four days a week. You know, maybe we don't have to have all our meetings in person. Maybe we can have half our meetings in person. So I think, you know, I think there, I think there are some long-term changes that were maybe, and this is maybe cliche, but that were already happening that maybe got accelerated here. Yeah, fair but, enough. Um, I actually, I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. But I, I mean, for sure, I want to go fly and travel and like vacation. I mean, that's something I really enjoyed. And so, yeah, you know, I'll be, I'll be part of that wave of people doing that for sure. Where, where are you taking, uh, where are you taking the family when you can? Oh man, I was just being very selfish. And I was thinking about, I have this race in Colorado that I want to run to <laughs> and I want to run up this giant mountain. Uh, but you know, but I was thinking maybe the family would go see grandparents in California and things like that. So I guess a get together, that would be, you know, the ideal maybe go to Iowa. That's where my grandparents live. So, you know, they're kind of an at-risk, you know, group of people. So I would want to be very safe if we were visiting them. But those are, those are the places I think are on my short-term list of, you know, go run my race in Colorado, you know, go see my parents in California, go see my grandparents in Iowa, maybe go to China at some point, you know, what about you? Any vacation plan, plans? I, you know, um, we, the wife and I went to St. Martin last year, the year before now, and we really enjoyed it. I, I think it was 2019. We went there for like a solid week or so. Uh, beautiful island in the Caribbean. And we just went there for a week. and just hung out. You know, it's not like we, we flew there. So it's not, you know, you cruise ships do stop there. But we didn't cruise there or anything. And I don't know. Is this something about being stationary where I think, I think, you know, the whole island you can drive around and it's 30 miles, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this neat little uh, oasis. But I think, I really enjoyed that area. I know the wife really enjoys that area. And now that we have Everly with us as well, I think that we would love to take her down there as well. And so we, we've been kind of contemplating when we can get back to St. Martin. So I think that's going to be our next, uh, our next trip. We're going to try to get out there. You know, we'll, we'll probably go driving Susan that and see some local family but really just getting on a plane. I think we're going to try to do that as soon as possible. So you're going to take Everly, Everly with you. You're going to take your daughter live, with you. Live on the beach for a week. So you, you would take your daughter with you on the trip? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We want, we want to make sure that she's traveled. I think, uh, I think seeing different places and going, you know, I mean, half the Island only speaks French. So, you know, it's just, it's a different experience, you know, to just hear other languages, to, to experience a little bit of a different culture. You know, it's, you know, they they cater to Americans pretty well, so we're like <laughs> we're not that fish out of water or anything. But it's kind of you know, at the same time, you get to hear a different language spoken. You get to you get to interact with people from different uh, cultures. When we were there last time, uh, one of the cool experiences, and I feel bad mentioning this because uh, my poor wife got a little seasick on the on the trip, but we got on a, this little catamaran tour. Yeah, and it was you know, like the the captain was Venezuelan. And there was a ship in port that day. So we had 
I think German passengers, you know, so there was like some German cruise ship passengers on there with us. So like there was Spanish, there was German, there was, you know, we were, we just came from the French side of the Island and it just happened to work out that like English was the language that was spoken. He's like, cause like even the Venezuelan captain came out and he's like, talking in Spanish for a second and he's talking French for a second, but then the Germans didn't, there was a German that understood English so she could translate, but the German passengers. So, but it was, so it was kind of just a neat experience where we, we didn't all speak the same language and everything, but we, you know, we, we were able to connect and kind of just enjoy, uh, enjoy being with people from outside of our immediate, uh, immediate circle. Oh, I, I love that. That's a, that's a great story, man. Yeah. I, I can't wait to go to a beach. I love beaches. I love sun. Catamaran sounds great. I love that swaying motion of the ocean. Like just you're being rocked like a baby, you know, but yeah, I mean, my daughter hasn't seen a beach yet uh, either, you know, to COVID. So, I mean, going to a, going to a beach and getting some sand and some ocean, I think she would love it. So yeah, I, that sounds like a great plan to me. <laughs> Good deal. Well, we've come, I think we've talked about a lot of good trades about a a lot of what you do. We haven't talked a lot about what you, what we, what you're trading, um, your experiences with trading. So I'm really glad we got into that. I've learned more about you. Do you have a question of the day for me today? I did not prepare one for you. It's about you. I feel like I should have had a question of the day. Oh man. I, you know what, this is one of those days I don't have, I don't have a a question of the day. Okay. Here, here, you know, on, on the fly. Okay. Uh, so let's see, you grew up in upstate new york right yes near buffalo near buffalo so are you a buffalo bills fan yes till the day i die till the day you die so um do you think the buffalo bills will win a super bowl in the next 50 years of course i do why else would <laughs> i be a fan of course they're gonna win a super bowl oh, in the next 50 years they will win a super bowl there will be a super bowl victory in buffalo before i die okay okay so if the bills do win the super bowl is there anything special that you would do Oh no, that's that's terrible. I haven't made any plans because you know I was I've been because it's because it seems kind of unrealistic. Sounds <laughs> so much heartbreak. So, so uh, let me just share some fact. I I grew up in Kansas City, right? And I'm a I was a Kansas City, I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan to this day. And um, like the Bills, they have a lot of heartache in their history. And they would make the playoffs and they would never get to the Super Bowl, and it was just soul crushing. And finally, last year they made it and they won. And man, I'll just tell you, it's a great feeling, Michael Johnson. It's a great feeling. Well, good, so I, good. I'm so glad, I hope glad your you Buffalo Bills get there one that. day. <laughs> I hope you get to experience that, Michael. You'll you'll really enjoy it. I hope your daughter gets to see that day. Oh man, I hope you're alive when you when that happens, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I hope I hope I'm alive too to see the Bills win the Super Bowl. Or you know, I, I'll also take a uh, a Stanley Cup from the Sabers. Okay. So okay, like, I'm okay. willing to compromise here. Okay. Okay. That seems fair. So that, that, I guess that's the question of the day, you know, will the bills win the Super Bowl in the next 50 years? Michael Johnson says, yes, you heard it here first, you know, you know, put Absolutely. your, put your, put your no sports betting down, you know, come check, you know, come check with me in 50 years. If they haven't, I will write you a check for a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars. Wow. Michael, you know, they, when the, when the aliens are recovering this podcast, you know, out of the, out of the, the time capsule, you know, and, and the bills haven't notice, won. Hey, notice I did not say one Bitcoin. Okay. Oh, oh, that yeah, that's true. Bitcoin, that you know, that's what we're that's what we're going to be using for the currency of the future, man. So. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds great to me. Well, with that, this has been trading for keeps. I'm Brian, and this is Michael. Thanks for tuning in.